Well, off the weekend, we are back in on the Fight Freaks Unite recap podcast as we saw a couple of tremendous battles, including one championship bout in England, and then really the nightcap for us in the United States. I saw a former world champion duke it out in a headlining fight for Golden Boy Promotions. Ready to talk about all of that, some news of the week, and much more news of the weekend, I should say, and much more, including some nostalgia. I am merely the somewhat capable host, TJ Reeves. He's the guy that we rely on for all the insight, for uh, all the perspective, uh, and much more, and his charming personality. He is Dan Rayfield, our insider off of uh, Fight Freaks United, Substack, and BigFightWeekend.com. Brother Rayfield, some weeks we have to come in and sell the recap. And then some weeks we come in and the recap sells itself. I would say category B. Those two fights were tremendous in the two main events. And we are ready to get into it. By the way, I should just say to the audience, make sure you're following, subscribing, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We're here off the weekend with the recap in the weekend on the preview. That out of the way, those fights sell themselves. Uh, where do you? Which one do you want to begin with? Because they were both top notch. And I'm not overselling here as no. we come off the weekend. No, listen, we sometimes uh, we sometimes when the fights are just so hum, we say, hey, they were ho hum. If they were terrible, we say so. And we got to give the props. These two fights that we're going to talk about that were the main the main events of the two major shows that were on Saturday were both absolutely sensational. Uh, the undercards were absolutely nothing to write home about. We're not even going to talk about those shitty undercards. But the two main events were tremendous. Both fight of the year type fights. I'd like to start with a Neary fight because that was really the better of the two. As, as outstanding as Lee Wood and Mauricio Lara were, and frankly, more significant from the standpoint that it was for a world title. But just from the point of view of like which you would want to watch again and and uh, and just scintillating action all the way, uh, I think it, the, the edge goes to the Neary Hovinessian fight. Let's begin with that one. The Golden Boy main event eventually won by Neary on stoppage, but it was not easy, and it was brutal. Uh, both guys landing a bunch. Uh, what a battle. Uh, all right. So your thoughts on what you saw and we, we, uh, continue to say this, here's another candidate for fight of the year already. And we're only like seven weeks, six, seven weeks into the year. I mean, that was uh, just an all, you know, all action stand in the middle of the ring and just let it all hang out. And by the way, matchmaking at this level, sometimes there's nuance to it. These were, uh, the, both the Laura Wood fight, uh, and, and this fight between Hovinissian and uh, Neary were not complicated things to dissect and to handicap in terms of would it be a good fight. We all said these are really uh, types of fights that have huge potential to be sensational fight of the year type of fights. And I know sometimes people like to get into that and they kind of overuse the phrase and it becomes sort of cliche and redundant. But I don't get cliche and redundant with that. If I think it's going to be that, I will say it. And this turned out to be exactly what we said. There was a clip that our friends at BetUS uh, that we do the, the betting show with on Fridays, they, they carved out some clips to help promote the show. And they took one of uh, the, you know, a 20-second blurb of me talking about the the type of action that both of these fights can produce. And, you know, again, I'm not saying I'm the only one that thought this, but it wasn't that hard to to say that Neary and Hovindissian was going to be an action-packed fight. And it turned out to be everything you could want it to be. It was, uh, you know, there were some stakes in it. It was a... WBC title eliminator. So with uh, Neary getting the seventh, uh, getting the eleventh um, round knockout, he now earns uh, a WBC mandatory title shot. He will face the winner eventually. Uh, I don't know if he's next in line because Stephen Fulton is a unified champion, and he's most likely uh, in the early part of the summer, probably June or so. He's going to fight Naya in a way. The winner of that fight will have the unified title. So you know Neary was is going to get a shot at one of those two guys. And by the way. You know, credit to, to Neary because after the fight, he was saying, you know, I want Fulton. I want in a way. And those are two guys that a lot of people don't call out. Uh, but it was not easy getting there because Hovinissian, uh, you know, put on a great fight, overcame terrible cuts and blood. And, you know, Neary got bashed around the ring also. I mean, these mm -hmm. guys were just laying it all on the line and giving it everything they got. And uh, as boxing fans, you know, tip of the hat, uh, you know, you just can't say anything, anything more about the heart and the will and the grit and the desire and the intensity of what these guys put each other through uh, to to get to the point where they could now next take the next step to fight for a title. Hovinissian has fought for a title in the in the 122 pound weight class. He lost a few years ago to Ray Vargas. He wanted to get another opportunity. Uh, Neary has been a champion in two weight classes. He wants another opportunity. He won a title at bantamweight. 
He was briefly a champion in the 122 weight class. He got knocked out by a body shot by Brandon Figueroa. And he went through a really hard fight. And now he's got the opportunity uh, down the road. He'll get another title shot. But boy, oh boy, doesn't get much better than that, TJ. And again, I know it's a cliche. We're here, like you said, we're in February. And we'll talk about this in a minute. But there's already like literally five good candidates for fight of the year. And Agreed. I lamented that last year, you know, there was a lot of good fights, of course. But it, it wasn't the greatest year for, for candidates in fight of the year uh, conversations. But we're off to a hell of a start so far, even in a year where we're not getting the biggest fights that we would like to see or so many of the matches are agonizing to get done and uh, people don't want to work together and all that. But so far, so good, I would say, even if they're kind of come out of the, you know, where you, this was a fight where you kind of expected to be great. Other ones that we'll talk about, you know, you, you sort of like catch lightning in a bottle. All right. So this is interesting because it will segue into the wood Laura fight and the stoppage of that fight. So interesting in this one, which chronologically came later, hours later in Southern California, that when Neri scored the knockdown, it was late in the round. The fight was allowed to continue. Neri, Neri landed some punches. You then had the bell. You then had Hovanesian come out for the 11th round in this instance, and it was obvious he was still hurt and Neri finished him off. So, uh, again, you know where I'm going with this eventually when we talk Wood Laura. In that case, the referee let it go on, and it could have probably been justifiably stopped, right? Possibly. Uh, end, end of the 10th round, uh, Hovindessian was taking a shellacking. He had uh, he had gotten dropped in the 10th round. He was hurt. Uh, but I think Ray Corona, who's the referee, who's – I don't know this off the top of my head, but because Hovindisian has so many of his fights in California, I would I would imagine that Ray Krona probably has refereed a Hovindisian fight in the past. And referees, they they know what they're dealing with, and I think referees are, uh, and this should be part of their their thought process when they're doing a fight. If you're doing a four round fight with a young prospect, obviously you're going to have a quicker hook to call a fight than you might if it's a big time world championship fight just based on the level of the event. And certainly if you have knowledge of the fighter, um, but he was standing looking really, really close at the end of the 10th round. I thought the fight was going to get stopped. It didn't. And the reason I think he let the fight go for those last 20 or 30 seconds, because even though he was taking a shellacking, he was throwing some punches back every now and then he would get off a couple of shots. And, you know, that's generally the rule of thumb. If the other fighter is throwing back, you let it go. And I always think, uh, the conversations I have had in the past with the late great referee, Steve Smoger, who when we would talk about, he, we had a couple of conversations over the years about his philosophy, about when to stop a fight. And he would always talk about the telling blow, the shot where the guy's head really rattles back and forth. And it's like the eyes go up in the head. There was nothing like that. Even though he was getting hammered, Kovanissian, there wasn't that type of shot where the head does a violent snap or the eyes roll up. He was just taking the shots and he was throwing a few back. And, and the referee was aware of where they were in the round. The clapper had hit. He knew there was just a few seconds left. He got out of the round. And actually, the minute rest period for Hovindessian did him a lot of good, frankly, because when he came out in the 11th round, even though he was not perfect and he was certainly still feeling the effects, he had moments in the 11th round. He rallied a little bit. He was landing mm -hmm. punches. It wasn't like he just walked to the middle of the ring and got clobbered. Uh, but Corona, when he saw uh, Luis Neri put together like a two or three punch combination and kind of you know, I won't say he's, you know, staggered him, but he, there were clear shots where he kind of moved in a different kind of way than he had before. And at that moment in time, you know, Ray Corona, who was generally a very good referee, he made the decision to stop the fight. And, you know, Hovindessian, he didn't argue. That's sometimes a telling sort of uh, post fact, you know, if the other guy is, you know, all of a sudden is telling you no, 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 because that means his wits are about him or whatever. That was not the case with, uh, with uh, this particular fight. And by the way, as I look at, uh, the, the record of Hovindisian, Ray Corona has done, uh, you know, a few of his previous fights. So go. he was certainly aware of the type of fighter that Hovindisian was. But that is. being said, I mean, he he had taken a bunch of punishment. He was clearly hurt in the 10th. And then I, I know, you know, you're talking about the solitary shot. But another thing you're concerned about is can he still defend himself? Not just is he firing back. Is he on the verge of taking a big time life altering type shot? Um, and so there you go. Uh, I, I think it was the appropriate stoppage. And again, you could you could even say it should have come earlier and would have been justifiable to come earlier. So I want to wrap I, on that and I want to segue to the yeah. other fight because that's where we're going to have some good debate on whether that fight should have been stopped with Wood and Laura. But anything else off this and off that card real quick? 
I was just going to say that had had Ray Corona stepped in during those last moments of round 10, I don't think there would have been a lot of complaint from anybody, right. uh, media fans, uh, the, the, you know, the, 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 the team of Hovenissian. But he let it go. And I thought it was the right move because Hovenissian did show life, you know, pretty good in the beginning of the 11th round. And then he got flipped again. And that was all uh, he needed to see. But uh, look, just a, just a, a great fight between, um, you know, two guys, honest fighters trying to do their thing. I mean, Neary's had his own issues in the past with Wade and and uh, and, and problems here and there. But he still when he when the bell rings, he gives you everything he's got. And that's all you can ask for from these guys. And and uh, you tell me who wouldn't want to watch Luis Neary fight the winner of Stephen Fulton in a way. And who wouldn't want to see after a nice rest, he, uh, Azad Hovindisian back in the ring, you know, trying to climb the mountain once again. I mean, there's these are two guys that give you your money's worth. And uh, they had a good crowd there uh, in Pomona, California. I don't know the exact total attendance, but Golden Boy said it was a sellout. Looked like, you know, a few thousand people. Um, and they put on a, a tremendous fight. All right. So there's that one. Now we move to chronologically earlier uh, and the matchroom boxing card, Nottingham, England. And what was a very entertaining WBA World Featherweight title fight won by Mauricio Laura. Now, again, we're patting ourselves on the back. Both you and I believe Laura was going to win. The odds makers deemed this about a 50-50 fight. We both thought Laura knockout, or actually, I, I was just protecting. I thought he would probably knock him out, but I wasn't 1,000% sure. So you got the knockout uh, prop. I only got the money line prop on the Laura win. Oh, we, both the the over, we both hit the over. We both hit the over. All right. I mean, so, I listen, the bottom line is just so look, we both did well. You were three and one. Yes, I was for four once. and oh. Can't complain. For once, I sort of kept up with you, which is good off the weekend with making some of the picks on the uh the over under or or who's gonna end up winning. Okay, so this circumstance different for a couple of reasons. Both fighters landing. First, there was an accidental clash of heads, and there was a, a cut, not not too nasty of a cut to stop the fight, but a cut on Wood's left eye. That, that was in round one. In round one, and that let Laura get off to a really good start. Then, interesting, Wood was firing back. I thought it was fascinating that all the judges in the in the post fight aftermath had given Wood the third through the sixth round. They all unanimously believed he won them all. I don't know on that back and forth action. Clearly, Wood in the fight, and then Wood is knocked down late in the seventh round with a big left hook. Laura dipped. A dipped kind of low on a fake, and then boom, right on the jaw. And then we saw the double impact that we always talk about. You've talked about it, written about it. Everybody in boxing talks about this uh, in and around the sport, where Woods' head smacks the canvas. In addition, I didn't, it, I didn't, it, it did. It did hit, but it, it, it no, no, it did. But I, it relative to other double yeah. double impacts, let's say, I didn't think it was that bad. Because he did get up very quickly, he and he All right. and he sort of definitely had his wits about him. We'll get so to he, that. So he gets up, and here we are in the final seconds of a round, and Wood staggered a little bit towards his corner, but then he had his legs under him, and the referee put his arms up and said, show me you can defend yourself, and he did, and he did. that. And then the towel comes in, and immediately becomes the controversy of, whoa, there's, there's less than 10 seconds left in the round. You're not going to give your guy a chance to defend himself for three or four seconds and then maybe recover in between rounds and the fight goes on. Okay, so I've set the stage. You are by far the preeminent guy to ask the question, did the corner prematurely end it for their guy there? I saw what you said on social media, but for those that didn't see it and haven't heard it, I think I know what's coming. Give it to me. All right, so a few things about that. Number one, they were both throwing left hooks at the same time, literally, and it was that Mauricio Lara's got there first. And before we get into the controversy or whatever about the stoppage, put that aside for a second. The fight was terrific. Mm -hmm. Credit again to Lee Wood. He made another great fight. He's coming back after about an 11 month layoff since his tremendous uh, fight against Michael Conlon last year that a lot of people picked as the fight of the year. Certainly was the knockout of the year when he knocked uh, Conlon out of the ring in the 12th round to get the victory uh, in a comeback as he was down on the cards. They had both been down in the fight. And you can't say enough about that crowd in Nottingham. They turn out to support Lee Wood. It's his hometown. Uh, so once again, an absolutely outstanding fight. You got to give up a lot of credit to Mauricio Lara. Uh, once again, on enemy turf, he did it when he knocked out Josh Warrington in their first fight. He came back to England and had the rematch with Warrington, even though it ended in two rounds because of a, of a headbutt that caused a cut that Lara couldn't continue. It was ruled a, uh, a technical draw. But he goes back again uh, to fight in, in Lee Wood's hometown. So Lara, the consummate sort of road warrior, uh, you know, quintessential Mexican brawler puncher, but 
He's got the world title now. And frankly, he should have had a world title when he knocked out Warrington. It just so happened that because of mandatory situations that Warrington ended up vacating the IBF belt when the Lara fight was already set. So Lara fought him, but he didn't have a chance to win the belt. Now he's finally got a world title around his waist. He's a WBA featherweight champion, and it's well-deserved. He's an exciting fighter. He's a tremendous puncher. He's got a good chin. You know, he's everything that you want to see in an in a, in a exciting fighter. Can I ask you, did you believe Lee Wood was winning that convincingly when you saw those cards after the fight? Did it surprise you, like me, that all three judges had given him the third through the sixth round, all four rounds? <laughs> I was maybe a little surprised it was that wide. I thought Lee Wood was definitely winning the fight. Uh, but I wasn't really that worried about it because Mauricio Lara is not the kind of guy, if he's going to win the fight, it's going to be because he dances and and and, and outskills you and outpoints you and and and, and just outboxes you. He's going to win because he's going to get you uh, eventually. You know, that's his whole game. You know, 12 rounds uh, or less is the bottom line. So uh, I didn't really think – I wasn't worried. Like, if, I'm, if I was a Lara supporter, I wouldn't have been that concerned that he's losing the fight in terms of the points because I know he's got the – you know, the great equalizer, which is the one punch. Um, so that said, I mean, yes, I'm looking here at the cards. He was down 58, 56 on two scorecards. He was down 59 to 55 on the third scorecard. I thought 58, 56 was very fair. I mean, I thought Lara uh, was in the fight, but certainly Lee Wood was winning the fight. So I thought it was uh, pretty well scored. I can't, I can't really, you know, we, we can, we bitch and moan and complain about bad scorecards all the time. Mm. Uh, this one does not rise to that level to me. Um, so anyway, the bottom line was it was another tremendous fight as far as uh, the fans were concerned. It's going to be on that conversation later in the year when people talk about the fights of the year and to get two in the same day is kind of a, a, a really great thing. So from that standpoint, fine, great fight. And Laura uh, looks like he's going to wind up having a fight Lee Wood a second time because uh, as Eddie Hearn, uh, the matchroom boxing promoter, stated in the post-fight commentary, that Lee Wood did have a rematch clause, which didn't surprise me. They didn't really talk about it much in the lead-up, but it was a, a title defense, but it was not a mandatory title defense, so therefore uh, usually you're going to get that rematch clause. So uh, it seems likely that he would exercise that. Eddie, in his post-fight commentary, sort of made mention that maybe they would do Lara Warrington 3, and Lee Wood would you know, sit out for a little while, maybe take an interim fight, and then do the winners against each other. You know, I, I think that what would be a huge, huge fight in the UK. Obviously, if Warrington somehow won the title back to do a, a fight between Laura, I mean, to do a fight between Wood and Warrington would draw, you know, they'd have to put that in a stadium uh, wherever they would find a place to put it. But the point is, Mauricio Lara is in a great position. Lee Wood's going to get the rematch if he wants it. Warrington, obviously, is still in the mix. And, uh, you know, good. They make, they, you know, all those guys make pretty good fights. So, all right, now we got to get into the, to the uh, stoppage. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're telling me? Let's all right, got a it. few thoughts. Got a few thoughts about that. Number one, my original reaction in watching the fight at, in real time was that's a quick stoppage. I didn't feel like that Ben Davison, who, by the way, I have a lot of respect for Ben Davison. I know Ben Davison a bit. I've interviewed him a few times. I've covered him uh, in his different uh, boxing uh, iterations. I've certainly um, you know, dealt with him quite a bit when he was the trainer of Tyson Fury. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Ben. So this is not about like uh, somehow anti-Ben Davis and everything. People are telling me like I was upset about the stoppage because I must have lost money on the fight. When uh, the reality is, you know, <laughs> if you watch the, the U.S. show, I hit the over and the knockout. So I wasn't upset at all. Uh, but the point is, I thought in real time it was I, I didn't think it was a horrible stoppage or anything like that. But I was like, I, I was questioning. It, and here's the reason why. And people can disagree with me which is fine. Everybody's entitled to their opinion, but the, the nastiness and the curse words and the, and the, and the threats and the, just the nonsense I looked at directed at me on social media, it was, it, it was so over the top relative to my comment, you know, it was sort of like taking a, a you know, a, a, a machine gun to an, to an anthill. It just was way over the top. Mm -hmm. So the stoppage happens and I'm like, okay, there's, I didn't know exactly how much time is left, but I know there's definitely less than 10 seconds because the clapper went, you know, they, mm -hmm. there's a signal, the trainers on both sides, part of their job is to be cognizant and aware of how much time is left in a round. I have seen in my time at ringside, they'll have one of the guys in the corner, not necessarily the head trainer, but one of the seconds literally. So they know a stopwatch and they're keeping time. You know, the old Sugar Ray Leonard thing when he was with uh, Angelo Dundee in the Hagler fight, you know, where they would hit the, they would clap a certain way or say something. So Sugar Ray Leonard knew there was 30 seconds left in the round. So he could then launch some kind of offensive outburst and sort of try to sway the judges in the final moments of the round to sort of quote unquote steal the round. My point is the referee doesn't know exactly how much time is left, but he knows how much time approximately when the clapper hits and the corner should be, that's part of their job to be aware of the rough approximation of what's left in the round. 
And if you're in big arenas, you can look up on the screen and you'll see a time counting now because they're mm -hmm. showing the video of the fight. So anybody involved in a corner who doesn't know how much time is left or close to it, they're not doing their job, in my opinion. That's the first thing. So Ben Davison and the team should have known there's less than 10 seconds left in the round, which there was because when the referee finally stopped it, there were six seconds left. Now, I think it was a bad stoppage. And the reason why is because one, Lee Wood got up quickly. And he responded to exactly what the referee said in a quick manner. When the referee, uh, who was Michael Alexander, told him, went like, you know, um, people can't say, put your hands up, put, right. put your hits up. Lee Wood responded immediately and did so. He was maybe like a little bit off balance, but he did a little shake and he was trying to get himself together. And he's going through the protocol, the referee, of wiping off the gloves. Meanwhile, Mauricio Lara is on the other side of the ring in the neutral corner where he's supposed to be. Now, it is my opinion as a person who has done this for a very long time. And by the way, fuck all the people that tell me, I don't know what I'm talking about because I've never been a professional boxer. <laughs> that is irrelevant. Please. That's like telling a hockey analyst that they had to have played in the NHL to know hockey or a football analyst who, or, you know, who never played a down in the NFL. There's plenty of coaches that are in the NFL that never played in professional football, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I will use the analogy. I may never have eaten shit, but I know it probably tastes bad. Okay. So I don't have to be a fucking professional boxer to have an opinion that's qualified of what's a reasonable stoppage, a bad stoppage, etc. So again, I didn't say it was a bad stoppage. I disagreed with it. And the reason was because if Mauricio Lara is on the other side of the ring and the referee is not even finished with the protocols yet of determining whether they're going to resume the fight. And there are less than 10 seconds up as it turned out six, but everybody involved should have known less than 10 based on the clapper and, and the situation mm -hmm. that it is my estimation that it, it was highly unlikely that once another two or three seconds went by when the referee calls them back together, that Mauricio Lara is going to be able to get off another punch, much less knock the guy out. And it wasn't like Lee Wood couldn't stand up or he was falling down. He gave the gloves. He's standing there. Yep. His legs were not maybe perfect, but you know, on a scale I agree of, one with all of this, there was, I, it didn't I agree even with all to like, it wasn't like he's way off the mark. It was like he was maybe slightly wobble, but again, not in any, I've seen a thousand times worse. Now, furthermore, my opinion would be have, would have been if, if you know how much time is left and it seems like a pretty damn good bet that there's not going to be time for another punch. And even if there is, Lee Wood's a professional boxer. He knows what he's doing in the ring. A, he could grab and hold for a couple of seconds right. to kill that clock. B, he might take the shot and stand up to it because he's a professional fighter who gets hit. And C, you have, once the bell rings to end the round, if you really think the fight should be stopped, assess your man in the corner. That's right. Go through what you have to do. And if you still think the fight needs to be stopped, by all means, you can stop the fight in the corner. So, again, I never, we've been through this. We did the whole thing with Yerba Sinuli. That was a totally different story. The guy was taking an absolute fucking annihilation for 11 rounds before uh, the poor guy finally got stopped and ended up in a coma. But this was not that kind of fight. Lee Wood is winning the fight for crying out loud. So, I didn't feel like, you know, the drama of right. like his life is in danger relative no, to any other. Not fight. even close to one, that. Other, one other. Yeah, thing go ahead. That. So you can stop the fight in the corner. And again, no, not a problem. Now, I want to just. So whatever I said about it, I need to finish with this. And all respect to Lee Wood. I said it was a bad stoppage and that maybe Lee Wood would, in fact, because I thought it was not the best that. I've seen fighters oftentimes in that type of situation, they will fire their trainer because they're disappointed, upset, and felt like it shouldn't have been done. I think to like Deontay Wilder fire, mm -hmm. firing Mark, uh, Mark Breland, which, Mark you know, yeah. was happened. That was strictly based on the stoppage in the Tyson Fury rematch. Now, beyond that, Lee Wood went on social media today. I saw his post where he said publicly, uh, I forget exactly how he phrased it, but he basically said, I support my coach. I know he cared about me. I know he was it was my it was his concern for my welfare. I'm I have the you know I can we can do this again. And so if Lee Wood in the retrospect, you know, of uh, a number of hours post fight, if he didn't think it was a bad stoppage, then I respect that and so be it. All right, so his exact line cuz I want to read it. Also, I stand by my coach's decision. I know he cares about me, meaning Davidson. Boxers sometimes have to be saved by themselves. I have more big nights ahead. It was painful at the time, but with my kids today, smile on my face knowing I'll be back better than before like always and he puts the fist and the heart uh up there defending his team. All right, so you said a bunch there on that. 
two or three just quick points just to add on to what you said. Number one, opinion is what makes shows like this go. We all have opinions. They can be in agreement. They can be in disagreement, et cetera. You don't have to have fought to have an opinion on what you see. Uh, certainly, fighters that have fought and give their opinion then about this are going to carry more rate than, than, the, than the Ray Fields and the Reeveses and everybody else that's going on. So you want to hear from them. Uh, there was immediate reaction, by the way, on the DAZN broadcast questioning the stoppage and whether oh. it was too soon, by the way, so from fighters. Tony Tony Bellew, who's a former yep. world champion and a yep. fighter and, a, and one of the one of the pundits on the on the uh, DAZN broadcast team for the events that they do in uh, the UK. He said he thought it was a little bit premature. And I, I had the same feeling that Tony did. And Tony is a pretty outspoken guy. Mm -hmm. And he's not, I, I know Tony a little bit from uh, interactions with him. He's not a guy that's going to hold his opinion. They hire him to be on those shows to give his opinion. And then I saw a few others also that, that had the same opinion that I did. And, and I don't think that it's worth, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not one to, if you think that it should have been stopped, I'm not going to like call you dirty names and vilify you and tell you you're, you know, an idiot. I disagree. I was having a conversation with one of my friends today that's in the business uh, who's got nothing and in, in, no involvement with any of the with that fight or match or anything, you know, in this particular instance, just an observer watching like a fan. And we had a good conversation about it. And and he thought that, yeah, it was the right stoppage. So we had a nice, like calm, respectful, uh, reasonable conversation about it. And we basically agreed to disagree. And uh, but again, I will preface or I will finish with my view on it and, and say that if, in fact, that it's Lee Wood's opinion that it was a good stoppage. I guess you really can't argue with that. I would just simply say this. I wonder if Lee Wood would have the same opinion if he didn't have the rematch in his back pocket. True. There is a rematch clause, and that's another great point. All right, let me back you up on two fronts. Number one, uh, I, I am in total agreement, and the video backs it up. He was not defenseless, ready to take what could be a life-altering shot. That, that did not exist. Number two, another interesting point, and we've talked about this before on the podcast. I think we may have brought it up with you, but we brought it up before when we talked about towels being thrown in. The referee is ultimately in charge. If he doesn't believe the fight should be stopped from the corner, he can throw the towel back out of the ring and let the fight continue and or let the bell ring, do whatever. The referee is ultimately in charge. That's rare that that happens. You would speak to it more. On, it has happened, though. But it has happened. All right. The next thing, and this is, this is oh, something also. in Okay, go ahead. One, one, and aside on that, one thing that drives me crazy is throwing the white towel. I understand what the implications are and what it means, but that should no longer be a thing because anybody theoretically in the crowd could throw a white towel and distract the referee and have him stop a fight. If you go to like a fight in Nevada, there is no more throwing white towels. If the corner wants to stop the fight, they are seated on their stool in the corner and they are with the entire time, basically attached to them at the hip is an inspector. And if they want the fight stopped, they tell the inspector, and it's the inspector's job to step up on the ropes and wave to the referee. If you know, if you watch boxing matches that take place in Nevada, you'll see the, the inspectors are the guys and gals that wear the sort of like the burgundy jackets. Right, the jackets, They right. step up, and they signal to if, the referee, stop If the I'm fight. correct in the Wilder example with Fury, it was the inspector up on the well, apron, yes. correct, who was you waving throw... at Kenny Bayless. It's over. They want it stopped. Correct. If the inspector goes up the the up to the apron and waves the referee will recognize that because the rules are the referee knows the inspector wouldn't do that unless it was coming from the corner and so the throwing of the towel is is an antiquated thing tell the inspector tell somebody that's on the the regulators they have people there in the corner that that's their job uh you know every time part you see of, corner, i know this part of where that comes from and it came from in the past is if the fighters are away from the corner and the crowd is going crazy and the referee can't hear that the towel is used as an attention getter, throwing it across the ring to throw it in the ring to say, I know you can't hear us, but stop the fight. We want but, the fight stopped. But I understand what you're saying. That the was not the case. The inspectors and the referees and the commissions, they have those conversations. They know to look for the inspector in Nevada. And uh, I got you. so, so a, a, a fraudulent. So the point is, so it's not a fraudulent towel that somebody's uh, throwing in. You. If you're sitting in round one or round one, you know, in, in row one rather, and you toss in your towel, you know, that may screw up the fighter, cause some kind of unnecessary situation. And so they're, they're there to do that job. And I wish they would do the same thing in other States and also in the United Kingdom. Okay. And so here's where I'm going to back you up and here, and I love coming back with examples. And this is even a recent example of the Liam Smith knockout of Chris Eubank. I sat on this recap podcast, what, two weeks ago with you, not more than three weeks ago, but that was two weeks ago, right? Where yeah. Eubank looked concussed when he got up from being knocked down against Liam Smith. 
he staggered towards the referee, didn't have his faculties, had trouble remaining upright, and the referee allowed and waved Liam Smith in to come hit him some more. And I said to you, I believe that fight could have been stopped right there. Now, one of the things you said to me is this is high stakes stuff. And you want to make absolutely sure within safety, not to be bloodthirsty, don't have to have a serious injury or worse, but you want to make absolutely sure that again, I'm backing you up. That's a big part of what your point was last night. This is high stakes stuff. In in honesty, Lee Wood may not get a shot at Mauricio Laura anytime soon, depending on the rematch and what happens, because I know Listen, her... here's the bottom line. Okay. If, if, if Mauricio Laura beats him and he doesn't have a rematch clause, trust me when I tell you Mauricio Laura goes elsewhere. Yeah, it doesn't want to fight him. And it may be that the Warrington fight, because the antics after the fight with the spitting at Warrington, that may be the more sizzle, too, than a Lee Wood rematch, at least in the short term. I don't know what they're going to do. And they, they work through the rematch. But in any event, this is high-stakes stuff for Lee Wood here in this moment. And he certainly did not react when the stoppage happened like a fighter that needed to have the fight stopped. And so for people to bring that up and say, because of the circumstances that we've been debating and discussing now for 10 minutes, especially with you're a few seconds away from having in-between rounds to evaluate him and let him come back out, I I, I think that all the criticism, where were your, where were your critics on the Eubank stuff? Because true, Eubank was, sta- was staggering all around the ring. Here's uh, the I other thing the, about it. The, the, you're right about that with Eubank, but the thing that's been driving me a little crazy is I've watched the replay of the stoppage in the, in the Laura Wood fight several times and i keep seeing these people that tell me like lee wood was staggered he couldn't stand up he was about to fall down he's going to get knocked out of mauricio lara breathes Wrong. on him I mean, and i i'm sorry I mean, all due respect i just don't see that i see it a doesn't. guy who's he's hurt but he's standing up he's responded to the commands and here's to me this is the tell and again i'm tempering this because i respect lee wood's own opinion where he's the one that said he was okay with the stoppage but when I watched these stoppage occur, when, you know, because the towel came in, Lee's back was to his corner. So the towel came in, kind of passed him. The referee more or less caught it. And when Lee realized that the towel had come in from his corner, there was no like fogginess to him or like kind of he's all over the place. He immediately turned like and went to the corner and started to shout. In other words, that tells me that Lee Wood had his wits about him at that moment. This was not a matter of like he's in a dazed fog and doesn't know what the heck is going on and he's out of it, which is what happens, you know, when you're that damaged, which is why the the fact that he may have had a double, you know, hit between the punch and then hitting on the head on the mat, I didn't think the mat, that, that, that the mat hit was in any way that bad at all because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to have his wits about him to react We're in to, agreement. The, to the towel. So We're in agreement. again, to sum up, TJ, great fight. Props to Lara. Tremendous battle. He's the champ now of the WBA. Uh, I disagreed with the way that the stoppage went down for all the reasons I think I've done a fairly reasonable way of explaining it. All that said, it's irrelevant because I respect Lee Wood, who was the athlete involved in the fight. He says he's okay with his corner stopping the fight. He's okay with his corner stopping the fight. My only question, and we'll never know the answer, is would he feel the same way if he knew that he wasn't getting another opportunity? Mm Mm-hmm. All valid points. Okay, so out of that, uh, and out of that matching card, we'll see what they do with a rematch, whether it is Wood and Laura, whether it will be Warrington. Again, uh, Laura and Warrington had a genuine uh, exchange where it got ugly, and clearly on the video, you can see Mauricio Laura spit at him uh, at ringside, and it got heated, and some of that was maybe selling a future fight, but some of that was, I hate you, I don't like you, from both of them. So That's selling. It, to an extent, but uh, whatever. I mean, <laughs> it just made me think of uh, when uh, when when Tony Bellew and David Hay went berserk at each other at a fight, and everybody thought this was like the Titanic uh, rupture of their yeah. But they're uh, friends. Whatever, they were friends. No, but before, the point was right? they admitted later that was all to sell the yeah. fight. And I suspect I, you know mm-hmm. there 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 may be some bad blood now, but in the I end, think there is. Selling, you know, they're selling the fight. I think so too. I think they're selling it, but I think there's bad blood. There as well. So we'll see what happens on that. Um, and again, you know, we we are now, what, six, seven weeks into the year. We got Better BF Yard, which was a very competitive, uh, action-packed fight. We've got Navarrete and Liam Wilson. Uh, we also have the Serrano-Erica Cruz ladies undisputed featherweight 
title fight. And now we have these two fights. We got some choices like early on in the year real quick before we move on to some news. Yeah, listen, I mean, one thing is in boxing, we may not get everything we want. There's a lot of people that have been pissed off and upset. We haven't got a deal yet for Fury against Usyk. We've never gotten, you know, Wilder against Joshua. We haven't gotten Fury versus uh, Joshua. They, they're having trouble uh, for a long, long time, for years of ever getting a fight between Spence and Crawford made. You always see the pissing and moaning between promotional outfits. Even the, the Ryan Garcia-Tank Davis fight, which we'll talk about in a minute, which is probably imminently going to be done and announced in the next day or two. Uh, that's been like, you know, having a triple bypass, getting that taken care of. Um, but in the fights that are not the mega fights, we're seeing tremendous action and fans are getting their money's worth. The only unfortunate part is most of these fights are in front of a more limited broadcast audience because uh, of their streaming nature. And they're not in front of much larger audiences, but better be of yard is a fantastic fight. And I remember when the fight occurred, it was like, Oh, fight of the year, fight of the year, fight of the year. And I was sort of like, come on, it's only, you know, what was that? You know, January, let's everybody calm down. You know, there's definitely be more. And it wasn't even like that. You know it wasn't what it's like? Biggest, I thought of, I, I thought of this. It's like any competition that you have that involves judging, whether it's like a beauty pageant, whether it's like figure skating competitions, whether it's like a, a comedy competition or whatever. You don't want to be at the beginning because if you're right. at the beginning, it's very tough to give the win to anybody at the beginning because what's going to happen in the middle Who's going to be better in the middle? Who's going to be better at the end? We're almost biased against January and February, right? And it gets too far I mean, away yes and we don't and remember. No. There are times, though, when you see a fight that's so extraordinary, you just know what's going to stand up. Like, I don't like, I mean, not that it was in January, February, but I think, you know, May is still the first half of the year. When I was at Diego Corrales against Luis mm -hmm. Jose Luis Castillo, uh, you know, obviously I'm that's going back a number of years ago. But the point is, <laughs> you walk away from that fight, whether you attended the fight or you just watch it on Showtime, you walked away saying, not only is that going to be the fight of the year, that's going to be like the fight of the decade. Now, as an example, as we tape this today on Sunday, today is the 23rd anniversary of Barrera Morales 1. When right. people walked away from that fight, there was no doubt about that that was going to be probably the fight of the year, or, or at least in the top two or three. And most famously, just uh, the same month, February uh, of 1990, when we saw Douglas Tyson, sure, you would say that, I mean, because of the magnitude of the upset and how great the fight actually was back and forth with all the drama, that's going to be the fight of the year. So those are good examples. Well, yes. as it turned out in 1990, the fight of the year actually came a month later with Chavez <laughs> and Taylor. I know. What a tough but that's, call, you talk about, you talk about What a doing tough the call, beginning. though. That's true. But think about it like this. You talk about like you have a, your hard press of you at the beginning. So when Chavez Meldrick Taylor occurs in March of 1990, St. Patrick's Day weekend at the Las Vegas Hilton, who would have that? So it's like really, other than the Douglas fight with Tyson, that was like the first big fight of the decade of the 90s, Taylor versus uh, Taylor, uh, Taylor versus Chavez. Mike Tyson, Buster Douglas was not a big fight. It only became what it became mm -hmm. because of the magnitude of the upset. Tyson was supposed to steamroll Buster in like a round. So Chavez Taylor, though, was a bonafide big-time fight. Unification, you know, two undefeated guys, both with big profiles and, and and fan bases and all that. So they go to they go to battle in their fight in March of 90, the, literally the first major fight of the decade, and it wins fight of the decade, you know, 10, year, you know, 10 years later. So they were at the beginning of the decade, and, and 10 years later, people still had it in such their memories that it became the fight of the decade. Uh, so it's not impossible for one of those early fights to get it, but I'm just making the point that we are very – uh, uh, happy to have had all those matches that we mentioned that were so outstanding, you know, even if we're not getting uh, some of the bigger names, but these guys, these guys and, and ladies are delivering, you know, big time when they get in the ring and they, and they've done their job. And if you've been a boxing fan, even paying close to, you know, even uh, half attention, you've got a chance to see some really special fights the last few weeks. Love the inside of Dan Rayfield as we rock along. It's the Fight Freaks Unite recap here. Again, we'll have a big fight weekend preview heading into the weekend, usually out Fridays. We're usually on this podcast out, if you found us on a social media link, et cetera, from Dan Substack or uh, from BigFightWeekend.com. We're usually out overnight Sunday into Monday recapping the weekend. We're going to get to some nostalgia in a few moments, now to some news. I have to confess, I, I wasn't with the DAZN Golden Boy broadcast the entire time. Did it get brought up around Oscar De La Hoya about what's the update on uh, Ryan Garcia, Gervonta Davis? Uh, I know you're optimistic that things are imminent. Did they ever even address it on the broadcast? Give us the latest, and do we have an announcement maybe coming soon? 
because we're inside well, now of a couple of months. So uh, Beto Duran, who was the ringside uh, uh, roving reporter on the on the the zone broadcast for the Golden Boy show that was headlined by the uh, Neri and Hovenissian fight, he did interview Oscar uh, to, between fights during the undercard, and that was addressed. And Oscar's point of view was, look, we're getting there. I believe it's going to get done. It's probably going to get done. Nothing is done yet. You know, you'll know it's done when you see the announcement from, you know, which means on social media, you'll see an announcement from Gervonta uh, Davis and Ryan Garcia. But everything I am told uh, from people involved in this is that that the fighters they've signed what they have to sign. And so it's down to just the network stuff, but everything is now finally, again, you know, you never know what's going to happen, but everything's agreed to. And the, the papers are out for signatures. They've got all their ducks in a row, their, their eyes dotted, their T's crossed. And it's, it's again, you never say never until it's actually signed, sealed and delivered, but this is about as close as it gets to, to being done when it's not yet actually have pen to paper. So I believe that in the next, 20, you know, we're taping this, uh, you know, nine o'clock at night on Sunday night, sometime probably on Monday, I would think, I would think Tuesday at the latest. I mean, maybe not Monday because it's a, it's a holiday. You know, a lot of people are, are working or maybe not paying so close attention to things because it's a president's day, but certainly in the next day or two, you, you should see this fight be formally announced for April 15th in Las Vegas, uh, live on Showtime pay-per-view. And, uh, you know, this is one of those handful of, uh, fights that boxing fans have wanted to see, and we're finally going to get it. And, uh, uh, again, when it's announced, it'll be done. But I believe that will happen, and uh, I'm excited for it. It's going to be a tremendous fight. It's going to be sort of interesting, TJ, going into this because a lot of the pre-fight stuff is going to center on, you know, the 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 where Gervonta Davis is mentally because, look, he's going to go into this fight, and a few weeks after the fight is over with, he's going to stand in front of a judge uh, in Baltimore and take a probably a jail sentence whether you know as if the expert that we spoke to the lawyer mm -hmm. that you spoke to that uh we talked about on the podcast the other day is right in his assessment as an expert and somebody familiar with the law in that's in maryland mm -hmm. in this particular case and all that that gervonta is looking at like what nine months to a year at, at minimum and uh that has to weigh on anybody and uh he's he's not going to be able to avoid the questions and the and and the, and the commentary about his legal situation heading into by far the biggest fight of his career and uh and for ryan garcia it's his biggest fight of his career by far also and uh i'm excited too young you know say whatever you want about Dramante davis in terms of what he's done in terms of how he's conducted himself outside the ring but these are two excellent boxers they're two exciting fighters they're two fighters with fan bases um this is the kind of fight where when you tell somebody who's a boxing fan it's on pay-per-view they don't bitch because it's on pay-per-view because they know it's a pay-per-view fight and i think where people get hung up in boxing is they're too often uh being sold a bill of goods as a pay-per-view for a fight that may be a good fight maybe a shitty fight mm -hmm. but it's not a fight that that they can really justify is worth an extra upcharge but this is one of those types of fights where if you're a boxing fan of course this is on pay-per-view and it's going to be worth it it's a very interesting fight all right, let's hope that does get announced. You've learned of another fight interesting, uh, 154 pounds, junior middleweight, Sebastian, the towering Inferno, Fondora. Uh, very entertaining. You've learned of, of, of an imminent announcement, it sounds like, too, of his next fight. What do we know? What do we think? So my reporting is, uh, talking to people involved, is that he will have his next fight April 8th, uh, venue TBA in Southern California will headline a Showtime card. He will fight Brian Mendoza, uh, which is a pretty good matchup. I mean, the 154 weight class is pretty top-heavy, but those top names are not available at the moment because if you take a look at the landscape, you have Charlo as the undisputed champion. He is nursing the broken hand that he's coming back from. He's uh, going to be on the shelf still for a, for a bit longer. And when he does come back, his obligation will be to fight the winner of the Tony Harrison-Tim Zoo fight, which will take place uh, you know, in the next several weeks. So... Those three fighters are out of uh, the ability for Fandora to get him in the ring. Now, as the interim champion, he's in line for one of Charlo's belts. But again, that's not happening because Charlo is injured. And when he comes back, he's got to fight the winner of Zoo and Harrison. And, and if you take a look down the rest of the rankings, there's guys that either are not even remotely close to happening because they're not known here or they're, you know, they're, they're from Russia, which they can't get in here and do a fight. Uh, I know the fight was offered to guys like uh, Brian Castaño. I am told that the Castaño team uh, really wasn't that interested, which that would have been an okay fight. But anyway, you get down to Brian Mendoza. He's 21-2 and two with 15 knockouts. He's coming off by far the biggest win of his career. He sent Jer uh, J Jason Rosario 
who was the former unified title holder at 154 into retirement. They fought that fight at middleweight. So Brian will come down in weight uh, to, to fight uh, Fendora, who is the interim title holder. And it's just, look, it's, is it the biggest fight in the world? Of course not. But, you know, on paper, it actually looks like a pretty good, solid, entertaining fight. Uh, I can see it being, you know, a very good fight, sort of. I don't know if it's going to be as good as, say, when Fendora fought Lubin, which was one of the leading candidates for fight of the year in 2022. But uh, given what is available in the 154 division, uh, this is a this is a solid fight. And uh, and if you like boxing, you know, who doesn't like watching Fendora fight? You know, it's, Amen. it's uh you it's know a lot of fun to watch get. this dude. He is going to yeah. stand in the pocket and he is going to bomb. And yes, sign me up whenever he's so, in there. It's uh, just a, it's a good old fashioned fight, you know. I will take right now. Give me the winner of Charlo and Zoo against the Towering Inferno later in 2023. Can you make that happen? Can you get on that by tomorrow morning? Can you make? I'll that see what I can do. I don't know if it's yeah. going to happen that quickly, but I do. I do think though. <laughs> there's a no, but in all seriousness, I think that because of his position with the WBC, clearly, a, clearly, that's a makeable fight, right? Well, they're all with they're all with uh, yep. they're all with uh, PBC and Heyman, and they've been fighting on Showtime. So, of course, that's makeable. Um, I don't think you know. Look, Fendora, he he's a guy that's still he's twenty five, but he still needs a little more experience. He still needs a little more seasoning. So, one or two more fights, I think at that point he's then ready for anybody in those weight classes. And because of how tall he is and how skinny he is, even though he makes the weight at fifty four uh, pretty well, according to his team, his promoter, his his father, the trainer. Uh, but at some point, you got to figure at that at that frame he carries, he's going to go up to 160 also, and 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 make things interesting. But as long as he's at 154, let's see him in these bigger fights. So Mendoza, a good fight. Um, but if he wins, let's see him in one of the, with the uh, the bigger names, which is obviously Charlo and maybe Zoo and Harrison if he wins. And uh, in the meantime, I just enjoy watching Fandora fight. All right, quickly some more news. Go back over to the UK. Chris Eubank does exercise the rematch clause with Liam Smith. That's not surprising. He had 30 days to do that. He did that. How soon do you think we will see this? What do you think? Well, when they when uh when Eubank went on his social media and announced that he had exercised his rematch right, there was no date or venue or anything, but mm -hmm. they'll get to work on that now that everybody knows that he's invoking that right. Uh Sourlands were his promoter at Wasserman Boxing. And uh, the Liam Smith team over at Boxer and Sky Sports, which is their broadcast partner, they'll get together and they'll figure it out. You got to figure it's going to be another pay-per-view, obviously, since the first one was pay-per-view in the UK. Here in the United States, we were fortunate. It was uh, just a normal part of your subscription of the zone to watch it. Um, so you got to figure uh, their fight took place January 21st. I guess I would figure it's probably sometime in the early summer, maybe June. But right. I, don't, I don't know. That's just my my. My and guess, again, I and guess. again, we have to relay Chris Eubank, immensely popular junior because of dad. And there is a sense, at least in his fan base, from everything you read, social media, all of that, that there's unfinished business here because they believe that Eubank, you know, would fare better in a rematch. So there are, there is momentum for this. There are legs for this, oh, yeah. for this rematch. And Liam Smith's going to get paid a lot more uh, by Most virtue definitely. of what he did. So there you go. Well, listen, I mean, the main thing also is this. I mean, he, Eubank was was uh, was doing very well in the fight until the time he got clipped. So mm -hmm. I can understand why he picked up the rematch. And if I'm Liam Smith, I'm probably thrilled because I'm going to make my biggest payday. In a, you know, I don't know what he made exactly against Canelo, but this is probably of all the fights out there for him. This is going to be his most lucrative fight. And what it tells you also is uh, we all know that there is no uh, rescheduling of a Eubank versus Connor Ben fight at this point because Ben is still on the shelf dealing with all the nonsense related to his his uh, failed drug test. Eddie Hearn keeps insisting that. Uh, ben is going to be back. I haven't heard anybody from the British Boxing Board of Control or anyone else say that. Well, with the British Board of Boxing Control, Robert Smith, who is the person that uh, is the is the you know head of the the British Board, basically said, I'm paraphrasing that until there's a a, a, a reckon, you know, until this is all dealt with and there's some kind of evidence that shows that he says that he didn't use that he can prove it, he will not box in this country, meaning United Kingdom. Hmm. So. Now right. that's not to say that that not that Connor it won't ben happen, right? right that yeah, he, no, no, but he, or either he can do something that will allow him to fight in the UK or work out whatever punishment, or he'll have to go to some renegade location where they won't honor that type of suspension. You can be damn sure that he won't get licensed to fight in the United States. That's the first thing. So could they go elsewhere in Europe? Could he go somewhere in Asia? Could he go to Africa or to Australia? Probably not even Australia. I mean, most of the the first world, if you will probably would honor the suspension but are there places uh you know that will happily take a name like Connor Ben and stick him in a ring probably but uh, in the meantime mainly 
this is going to be about Eubank and uh, trying to avenge his loss to Liam Smith. And, uh, you know, Connor Ben can buy it on pay-per-view. All right. More, more. I like that line. Uh, more news real quick. And then I want to get to nostalgia, including the historic Chavez Hogan fight in front of the biggest crowd ever for a championship fight. Uh, Nonito Donaire is going to get an interim uh, title fight again. Is he 39 yet? He's going to be well, 39 first of all, later this year. He is 40 and it's not interim. It's 40. for the vacant. Oh, it's for, for the, the vacant. It's for the vacant title that Inouye had, right? For the WBC. Right. So Donaire fought the 2019 fight of the year against Inouye in a unification fight at Bantamweight for, to unify three of the belts. It was the tremendous fight. It was probably, not probably, it was definitely the hardest fight of Inouye's career. Uh, Donaire, you know, inflicted some injuries on him. You know, he ended up losing a decision, but it was a great fight. Uh, they had the rematch. Donaire got knocked out in the second round. Uh, Inouye went on to become undisputed. And now, of course, as everybody knows, he has vacated all those belts. He's moving up to 122. Uh, to fight, uh, they're still trying to finish everything up, but he's going to fight Stephen Fulton probably in the early summer. And now with all those belts vacant, what that does is once you unify and you have an established champion and there's so-called clarity in the division, suddenly, uh, you know, guys don't stick around and continue to defend. So the titles become splintered once again. And because of Donaire's position, uh, he's now in, in the position to fight for the vacant title. Remember, at the WBC convention at November, he was uh, ordered to fight in a final eliminator against the Australian Jason Maloney. And they were going to probably do that. And then when Inouye vacated, there was some conversation, are we going to do Maloney for the vacant title? Jason Maloney got is getting some other opportunity in another organization. So he decided against that, he's not going to fight Donaire, his prerogative. So the next leading available situation uh, guy in, the, in those rankings that would accept the fight was Alexandro Santiago. And so they've ordered that fight. I have, I'm pretty sure that will happen. Uh, Donaire will get a chance to fight for another title. And, you know, he is in the twilight of his career, no doubt about it as a band weight at 40 years old is highly unusual, but he's a first ballot hall of famer. He has won world titles in, in a, uh, you know, weight classes from uh, fly weight all the way up to featherweight with the exception of having claimed only an interim belt at 115 pounds. Uh, but no need Donaire, when you're not fighting no in a way, he probably can handle himself with any band weight in the world. And uh, it wouldn't be a surprise to me to see him at age 40 to win another title. If he gets this fight wrapped up. All right, let's get a couple more news things out of the way. Then we got to talk nostalgia, and then we're good here on the uh, the recap. I'm going to say the name. I was so hoping that I did not have to say this name. <laughs> oh, you want me to say it for you? I'll say it for you. you say, say it. it. Go. All right, we're going to talk for just a minute. I promise we won't make it. We'll make this painless for you. But we have to bring up the fact that uh, our good pal Adrian Broner, Adrian the Problem Broner. Don't say our. He can be your good pal. Keep going. <laughs> I say that in in jest. Um, I have to be honest. Before we get to that. I've always had like sort of a, a love hate kind of frenemy thing with Broner for many years, but I, I I've known him since he turned pro. Basically I met him when he was probably like 18 or 19 years old. Uh, we've had her back and forth. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a thing on uh, you can find, I've seen the viral clip of uh, him busting my balls at the press conference after the Manny Pacquiao fight. And I busted his balls right back. In any event, he was supposed to have a fight February 25th on the main event of the BL BLK prime pay-per-view and uh, that fight is now supposed to be next Saturday, but that fight was uh, canceled because his opponent, this is not an Adrian <laughs> Broner problem uh, to, to use his nickname. Michael Williams Jr. suffered a broken jaw. And so the fight is off. And so the BLK prime people, uh, I am told it's not definite, but they'll find another opponent. They'll try to reschedule this pay-per-view probably uh, in April 29th is the date they're looking at it. Also, this, is, this was already the third opponent. Yeah, right? I'm just going to say that he was supposed to fight Ivan Redcatch. Ivan Redcatch uh, got in, is in a big contract beef with his promoter, which is Joe uh, Joe DeGuardia from Star Boxing. So he was forced out of the fight. Then they when they signed Hank Lundy for the fight. As it turned out, Hank Lundy already had assigned the contract for another fight, and the promoter of that card in California was not happy with him when he walked out in the fight and turned it over to the California State Athletic Commission. And Andy Foster, who's the executive director, had no choice but to suspend Hank Lundy. So he had to be out of the fight. And so when that happened, they went and got Michael Williams. And then with Michael Williams having to pull out because of an injury one week, you know, uh, what, nine days before the fight, eight days before the fight, it certainly didn't leave enough time to, to bring a new opponent in, particularly given it's a pay-per-view. So the fight's postponed. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the undercard fight, the co-feature was supposed to be a fight between Tevin Farmer, the former junior lightweight title holder, and the former lightweight title holder, Mickey Bay. These, this fight between these guys has been scheduled, I swear to God, it got to be about five times. And not their fault, really. I mean, but it's just been hanging around and bouncing around. And once again, it's postponed. 
And I would just say, if, you, if you're going to look to do a boxing, I'm joking here. Don't put Mickey Bay and Tevin Farmer on because it's a kiss of death. I'm joking. Uh, you know, not, those, are, those are decent guys. But that fight's off now, and I guess they'll be rescheduled in April when they try to put this card back together. But look, Broner, say whatever you want about him. He's not what he was. His skills have degraded. You know, he had a chance to be something special and a superstar, and uh, it didn't go his way. He had a lot of issues outside the ring, legal problems, alcohol problems, Still does. Mental health issues. He's got a lot of, lot of problems, no doubt about it. But by all accounts, in this particular camp, if you look at the videos of him training and all the things, the guy's put the work in. He's in shape. I mean, that's for sure. Like, he feels more – I'm not making it use for him, but it feels like at this moment he's in a better spot mentally than he's been in a very long time. So I wish Adrian Broner good luck. I wish he could get his life together, get his shit taken care of, and and uh, see if he can still scrape together something left of his boxing career because, uh, you know, so far it's been a bit of a disappointment given the amount of talent the kid had. And it's hard to say that about a guy that actually had titles in four weight classes. But that's the softest four weight class title holder in the history of boxing because mm. there's no big wins on the record, unfortunately, for him. And by the way, you gave that a ton of time, and that's one of us that cares whether Adrian Broner fights anymore in on BLK Prime. <laughs> How about that for a strong comment on the Fight there Street Unite recap? Uh, all right, uh, anything else? I know Ioka is going to defend... Uh, you always swat me when I don't get this uh, correct. Ioka is going to uh, fight at junior bantamweight, and they, they've got a new opponent. And you want to mention that real quick, and then we'll get to some nostalgia. What's up? Well, it's not so much a new opponent. He had he had had a draw against Joshua Franco uh, in a unification oh, right. fight on uh, on New Year's Eve. By, by the no, way, I, can I just interject? Joshua Franco sure. robbed in that fight. Joshua Fair Franco enough. won that fight. Continue on. So it was a draw. Continue on. What's going to happen next? Well, so Ioka was the WBO 115-pound champion going into that fight. Franco was a WBA champion, and they had a draw, and they were looking to do a rematch. But Ioka was ordered to make his mandatory against uh, uh, Junto Nakatani, who was an excellent fighter, a former flyweight champion, very exciting guy. Uh, was, there wasn't a lot of interest, I am told, in Japan to, or a lot of you know political will to make that fight. He had much better opportunity and money to do the rematch with uh, with Franco. So unfortunately, Ioka, who is the only Japanese fighter to ever have won titles in four weight classes, he is given, he has given up the WBO title, and he will still go forward and have a rematch with Joshua Franco, probably in the June timeframe, and it will just be for Franco's title. But that's a bigger fight, I guess, in, a, in the worldwide perspective than it would be to fight against Nakatani. So Nakatani will fight for the vacant title uh, against Andrew Maloney, the brother of the Jason Maloney, who we have mentioned uh, earlier on the podcast. And uh, that's the deal. My, I, I, I've said this before. Ioka is not a well-known guy in the United States. He's, I think, fought here just a one or two times. I saw him fight live once uh, years ago. Um, he, he's, I think he's like a borderline Hall of Famer. If you take a look at the record he has compiled, he's fought a lot of good opponents. And, uh, you know, we'll see if he can go back and make it a, a definitive result either way in the rematch with Franco, who, of course, people know is the brother, the older brother of Jesse Bam Rodriguez. Looking forward to all of that. Uh, all right. Am I about to say this again? On Monday, it is the 30th anniversary. Good Lord. Am I correct? It's it's February 20th, 1993. It's yes, sir. It's the 30th anniversary of Julio. I, I was thinking 20, but shit, it's 30. Good Lord. We're getting old, Rayfield. Oh 30 God. years ago, February 20th, 1993, Julio Cesar Chavez, Greg Hogan, in front of what a hundred and three thousand correct Azteca Stadium, no. Mexico City, wasn't it a hundred and three? One hundred thirty-two thousand two hundred forty-seven. And TJ, I would appreciate <laughs> if you would you would look at the rundown that I send you. It actually says that in the rundown, one hundred thirty-two thousand two hundred forty-seven. And when I think I about the number you. of people. You know what I appreciate? But I knew that that was thirty years ago, and you didn't know it was thirty years ago, and I had to correct you on the podcast. Continue on. That's I'm thinking, look, so the biggest fight I've ever covered in person in terms of attendance was the Canelo Alvarez, Billy Joe Saunders mm -hmm. fight to unify their titles in the super middleweight division. That was at AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas. And that set the all time American indoor boxing record. Uh, I believe the attendance was around 70, 73,000 and change, something like that. Or seventy two thousand and changed. So now I'm going to correct you. It was like sixty five thousand. It was no, just no, over the alley. It was number. over seventy. All right. Well, then I'll look 70. it up. I'll look it up while we're it, talking. Listen, TJ, it, broke, on. it broke the record of Ali Spinks, which was like sixty five. All right. It broke I'll look it up while we're talking. Go ahead. Go ahead. What my point was when I think about the amount of people that I saw in the stadium that night for Canelo versus Saunders, 
I'm trying to wrap my mind around there being almost double the crowd for the Chavez fight. That's really what you have to think about. We're not quite double, but close to it. Now, granted, the stadium, uh, Azteca Stadium in Mexico City is outside, and so it's not an indoor dome situation. Uh, By the like way, you're right again, 73,000 for Canelo. And this of one course. had 60,000 more, which is your point. That's God almighty. Yeah. So, and, and by the way, a boxing ring, they don't, it's not like in Mexico city in 1993, it's not the most technologically advanced place. It's not like they had giant screens around like in Cowboy stadium, you know, mm -hmm. they got the gigantic screen that's on the stadium. Anybody can see a great view of it, no matter where you're sitting, at least if you're looking on the screen, you know, you're looking at like mosquitoes if you're up in the nosebleeds uh, in uh, Azteca stadium. Right. But anyway, the, Don King put on, we've talked about this before, the great pay-per-view cards that he did in the nineties. This was called the grand slam of boxing. It was Chavez defending his uh, WBC uh, junior welterweight title against Greg Haugen, who he referred to uh, in the uh, in the lead up, uh, uh, or, or I, I believe it was Haugen who said that Chavez had done nothing but fight Tijuana taxi drivers, uh, and and Chavez proceeded to deliver a beatdown on Greg Haugen, tough as nails kind of guy, knocked him out in the fifth round. But that's the biggest recorded crowd in the history of boxing. Bigger, I mean, think about. The big fights. Now, we've seen some incredible crowds in boxing just in recent times, you know, whether it was the 94,000 that were there for Tyson Fury against Dillian White in Wembley Stadium. I was in Wembley Stadium when Klitschko fought Anthony Joshua in front of 90,000. So uh, or uh, 80,000 for that fight, I guess it was um, or whatever. But it was a huge. I think it was 90,000. Right. right. Like, that was an outdoor one. So it didn't break any kind of indoor record. The point is, there's been some astronomical crowds. Uh, in the last few years and some of these big giant boxing events, but 132,000 shows you the the legendary status of a Julio Cesar Chavez. And just let me give you a quick rundown also, because we talk about on the podcast a lot of times when we see these pay-per-view uh, undercards that get announced. Now I know we had a conversation on the last podcast where we sort of discussed the merit of the upcoming pay-per-view between David Benavides and Caleb Plant, which is a hell of a fight. And we were talking about the undercard and I was upset because people kept terming it great. Now, I'm not knocking the undercard, but to use the word great kind of irritated me. So now I'm going to give you a real undercard for a pay-per-view. Harry Norris, Hall of Famer, defending the WBC 154-pound title against Maurice Blocker, who was a top-notch welterweight title holder. You have Azuma Nelson, Hall of Famer, mm. in a, a, a decision victory against Gabriel Rellis, who was a top contender at that time, to defend the WBC 130-pound title. Azuma Nelson's one of probably in the top two or three greatest fighters ever from Africa and a Hall of Famer and was in some great fights. And on top of that, you had Michael Munn, who was on a Hall of Fame trajectory and at the time was considered one of the top pound-for-pound -pound fighters of the late 90s. Uh, he had a knockout victory in a defense of his WBA super middleweight title on that undercard. So you had Chavez, who was the biggest star at the time uh, in the main event against Haugen. And then you had those three other fights on the undercard, including two of them that involved Hall of Famers. And uh, that was your pay-per-view on mm. what was at the time called SET pay-per-view, which then became, the name was changed to Showtime pay-per-view. Uh, and the fact that that's 30 years ago was kind of crazy. But I will tell you this, TJ, it may not be the rarest thing in the world, given there was 132,000 plus at the fight, but I do have a beautiful full ticket from that fight in my uh, extensive boxing collection. Love that in the Rayfield collection. And again, that was uh, just before the controversial draw later that year between Chavez and Pernell Whitaker, which a lot of people believed at the time the fix was in on that decision. Sweet P. Whitaker got robbed, but he beat up Greg Hogan. He left no doubt on the judges or anything else uh, that night. And Hogan did a good job, as we were talking about earlier, about selling. Hogan was selling that as the American villain and the whole bit. Uh, that was really that, that was really Chavez sort of like in the in his in his peak days i mean he was really the prime guy at that point he was in the midst of a very long title reign yes he did uh lose although he got the draw against pernell what he had gone up and wait for that but even after that he had come back down to continue defending at 140 pounds where he defended it a few more times and then of course you know he seemed to um start to show his his age a little bit you know when he got the loss uh, a couple of years later against uh frankie randall but chavez and haugen from the standpoint of where he was in the at least in Mexican uh, boxing and in, in the Mexican fans' hearts, you can draw 132,000 to a boxing match. Uh, you're doing something right, and that that speaks to the just the insane popularity of uh, of Julio Cesar Chavez. And and like you said, Haugen did a great job of selling that fight. Also, all right, some great nostalgia, lots of stuff on the recap, some news. 
Are you ready for Jake Paul fight week? I, I have to confess, we are sitting here on Sunday night uh, into Monday morning, and I am surprised this thing is still on. And it will not surprise me if something happens Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday with Tommy Fury not showing up, not getting there, not participating, wants more money, some other problem. But we have reached the fight week now that we release this podcast of Jake Paul and Tommy Fury put on for the third time. So that'll be a topic later in a week. I'm just calling my shot, Rayfield. Do not be surprised if suddenly this thing is off in the next two or three I, days. I sort of suspect it'll happen. It's scheduled I agree. for Sunday. Scheduled for Sunday. For those who care in the United States, it's an ESPN pay-per-view uh, on other other uh, outlets around the world. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm going to watch that just for shits and giggles. But I'm more looking forward to the other card. Now, it's not going to attract the kind of attention that Jake Paul will. But on Saturday, and we'll preview it later in the week. They have a nice uh, triple header on Showtime, headlined by Sabriel Matias against Jeremiah Ponce for the one of the belts that was vacated by Josh Taylor, the IBF junior welterweight title. That should be, look, I don't want to say it again. That's got a chance to be a great fight also. If you watch Sabriel Matias, he's a tremendous puncher. He's a, he's a guy that will come and fight you. And uh, Jeremiah Ponce from Argentina has got, a, you know, got that same kind of tenacity to him. I watch him go to Lewis Ritson's hometown in the UK and give him a beating. Um, so he's a fearless kind of guy. Uh, that should be a good fight. And the winner uh, is going to have that vacant title and, and become a, a serious player again in this. Uh, I, I won't say it's wide open, the 140 division, because Taylor still is the recognized champion, but he hasn't fought for so long. And there's other guys that are trying to, you know, hone in on that territory. And, you know, there's some there's some talent in that weight class. And and uh, but that should be a good fight. That's on Showtime. And we'll get to that later in the week. But, uh, yeah, I know you're excited for the Jake Paul fight. Are we? Here's the question I got for you, TJ. Mm. Are we gonna are we gonna be doing like an official pick on the Jake Paul fight for the bet? I think we got to. There's a bet US line, and it's yeah, there a, is okay, and it's a and it's a fairly even fight. I, or actually, I think Jake Paul's like five to one last I looked, okay, uh, to win that. But what what are the odds that the, from Bet US or anybody else that Tommy Fury pulls the plug a third time on this fight? Because if, even if those odds were like two to one, I, I would be. I, I kind of suspect right at this point that we're so close that he I'm with you. Fight. Still, uh, I mean, we don't. Well, I tell look, you what, I look, listen, I looked before we talked just to see is he there yet? Is there anything on social media that he got there yet? I don't know. I don't know what the truth is. Is he there in Saudi Arabia already? I would suspect that maybe this weekend he got there or is getting there because the fight's a week away. Stay tuned. You'd think Stay he'd tuned. be there like on you'd think they'd all be there like Monday, let's say at the latest. Mm -hmm. Um and if you if you if you don't have enough of your excitement level ri rising because of the opportunity to see Jake Paul uh tee it up with uh, Tommy Fury, I know you're super excited for Saturday with the big Floyd Mayweather <laughs> Aaron Chalmers ex ex exhibition match that's taking I'm gonna place use in it London. now on you, your boy Chalmers, your, your boy, boy, your boy, boy Aaron Chalmers, your, your boy Chalmers is now going to fight. How's your boy Deji doing? Uh, I don't even know. <laughs> uh, all right. So with that, my, my friend, I think we've done all the damage we can do on the recap. <laughs> we want to say to the peeps, make sure you follow, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify to the Big Fight Weekend podcast feed, because when you do so, if we have interviews, special stuff during the week, before the weekend preview, before the recap, you'll get those automatically as well. You get notified. You'll get those automatically. And what do they get? They get a light. They get a bell. What else do they get? A banner, a buzz, a vibration, a ding. Something that will tell them, hey, new podcast with Rayfield, railing away. Uh, with that, I think we're good on this one. Have a great week. Thank you, my friend. We appreciate it as always. You bet, TJ. Talk to you later, my man. There he goes, Dan Rayfield, Fight Freak Tonight, Substack, BigFightWeekend.com. Follow, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify to the Fight Freaks Unite recap through the Big Fight Weekend podcast feed. For now, we are good. Uh, for Dan Rayfield, I'm TJ Reeves. Have a great week.